Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. The first episode of our second season on revolutions and rebellions. We began by looking at two miniseries about the American Revolution, HBO's John Adams and the History Channel's Sons of Liberty. Today, we're going to stay in the American Revolution, but look at two TV shows that took a, that took a very different approach, focusing far less on the famous you know, founding fathers, and instead, they highlighted the experiences of more average people who were forced to negotiate fast-moving and complex events. They are Turn, Washington Spies, and The Book of Negroes. The three lies agreed upon from episode one are still represented in both of these series, but we really want to emphasize how Turn and The Book of Negroes bring the stories of ordinary people to life, but in very different ways. When the founding fathers do make the occasional appearance on screen in these, it it works really to kind of reveal and emphasize the contributions of those who were the invisible movers of events, you know, farmers turned spy, for example, or slaves caught in the middle of a dispute that really had no discernible impact on their plight. So what are those lies agreed upon concerning the American Revolution? First of all, that the revolution was simple and quick and had an obvious outcome, you know, the whole inevitability argument. Um, second, that the founding fathers were the only important actors in the revolution. And really, our episode is today is mostly about that. And third, that the war was waged between idealistic freedom fighters and corrupt occupiers. Good guys versus bad guys, in other words. So turn demystifies the revolution. It tears families and communities apart and forces good men and women to do really awful things. Uh, Turn is basically asking us whether, in the end, was this all worth it? And that seems to be the message it leaves us with when all the dust has, has settled. The Book of Negroes, on the other hand, really couldn't care less about the American Revolution as a momentous political event. It was bad news for enslaved people in North America, 
full stop. So yes, these series, both of them, show us that the founding fathers were not the only important actors in the revolution, and also that not all of the actors were even invested in the outcome. So like we always do, let's first recap our series. Turn, Washington Spies, ran for four seasons on AMC between 2014 and 2017. It's based on an excellent book by historian Alexander Rose entitled Washington Spies, The Story of America's First Spy Ring. And that was published in 2006. Rose was born in the U.S., but raised in Australia and Britain, where he completed his doctorate at Cambridge University. He also worked in Canada as a journalist. And I really think of this transatlantic perspective it explains why Turn is so effective. It doesn't vilify the British and it doesn't valorize the colonists or patriots or proto-Americans, whatever you want to call them. Nothing is ever black and white in any revolution, and this one was no exception. The plot of Turn revolves around a farmer from Setauket, New York, that's on Long Island, and his childhood friends as they try to survive the Revolutionary War. The group of friends in real life become the culper spy ring that was so crucial to George Washington's success throughout the entire war, really. That's right. And the series does mostly adhere to the book, although the characters' relationships and certain biographical details are changed to heighten the dramatic effect and create enough you know, human interest subplots to last four seasons. Uh, to this point, the principal cast members are young and attractive and talented. Abraham Woodhull, our simple country farmer, is played by Jamie Bell, who first came to everyone's notice as Billy Elliot. Uh, the rest of the spy ring uh, are played by Seth Numerick, Daniel Henshaw, and Heather Lind, who I loved in uh, Boardwalk Empire, and all of them are great. The key characters in Setauket, um, but outside of the immediate spy ring, are Abe's wife, played by Megan Warner, and his loyalist father, Judge Richard Woodhull, played by the great Kevin R. McNally, one of those actors that you've seen in a dozen things without knowing his name. Judge Woodhull initially welcomes the arrival of the most notorious love-to-hate character, British Captain Simcoe, played by Samuel Rukin, and Major Edward Hewlett, played by one of my favorites, Bern Gorman, who will look familiar also to viewers as a regular from basically every Masterpiece Theater or BritBox series of the past 20 years. But we're not done yet with these great actors because the, the show did run for four seasons and it's a expansive plot and a lot of characters. So there's some others we'd like to highlight. We have J.J. Uh, Field as Major John Andre, who's also a real person, the British head spy, and Angus McFadden, uh, regularly stealing the show as Robert Rogers, the stone-cold killer Queen's Ranger, who really starts out as a loyalist, obviously, but runs afoul of George III. On the other side, Ian Khan is a severe and humorless George Washington, while Owen Yeoman plays a particularly nuanced Benedict Arnold. And finally, the fabulously named Ksenia Solo plays Peggy Lytton, also a real person who is definitely the loyalist wife of Benedict Arnold. 
and definitely an agent of the British in her own right. And she probably was the one who recruited Arnold. The series also really complicates the idea of good guys and bad guys by having enslaved people and freedmen passing vital information on both sides of the conflict, especially Abigail, played by Adara Victor, and Aldous Hodge, who will look familiar from a whole bunch of things, plays Jordan, an enslaved person who then finds freedom when he joins the Queen's Ragers and reclaims his African identity as Akinbode. Turn is is kind of a gorgeous series to watch. I say that as a Virginian uh, because it was filmed on location in Williamsburg and Richmond primarily. And I think it's because that area still looks and feels very colonial. But the hook for audiences is seeing the revolution from below. A band of amateurs with divided loyalties and conflicting responsibilities who have to navigate this incredibly dangerous environment. The four seasons of Turn take us from 1776, after the British have managed to occupy New York City, and it ends when the war ends. And it also adds a coda that helps us to see that there isn't actually really a neat summation to everything. We're told that Woodhull's son, who we see as a small child uh, throughout the, the series, dies uh, in the War of 1812. And so we're left to understand that the commitment to the revolution and the new nation is multi-generational in turn, and that everybody is invested in the outcome. Yeah, that's right. And now we'll talk about a series where not everybody is invested in the outcome of the revolution and certainly not the new nation. Uh, The Book of Negroes is a 2015 miniseries that tellingly was co-produced by BET and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In other words, it represents two populations often sidelined in narratives of the revolution, Black people and British loyalists. Uh, It was adapted from an award-winning novel by Lawrence Hill, a biracial Canadian author who writes fiction and nonfiction, including a, a celebrated 2001 memoir, Blackberry Sweet Juice, on being black and white in Canada. The Book of Negroes is historical fiction, and the protagonist, Amanada Diallo, is a composite, but the story is firmly grounded in substantial historical research. Director Clement Virgo adapted the book for the small screen. The actual Book of Negroes is a historical document of recorded names and descriptions of 3,000 enslaved people, the so-called Black Loyalists, who had escaped to the British lines during the American Revolution, were freed, and were to be evacuated by the British by ship up to Nova Scotia. The story here begins in 1761, when 11-year-old Amanada Diallo is abducted and taken captive from her village in West Africa by the then Dutch East India Company. She meets another boy from her region, Chikora, Uh, who is working for the enslavers, but he too is uh, sold into slavery. Amanada and Chikura endure the horrific Middle Passage, graphically represented, and are sold into slavery in South Carolina. The series stars the really excellent Ingenue Ellis as the adult Amanada. She's so compelling, and she really carries the series. I mean, I'm not sure that there's a scene in the series that she's not in. And 
uh, Lyric Bent plays the adult Shakura, who becomes Aminata's husband after they're able to reunite. Uh, Shailen Pierre Dixon also deserves a, a, a really strong mention as the young Aminata, as does uh, Siabonga Zaba, who is the young Chikora. And I hope that both of those uh, youngsters have really uh, long careers. Yes, those are, you know, for most American audiences, they, you, they're new faces. But one who is not a new face that shows up in the series and a few episodes in, Cuba Gooding Jr., uh, he gives a subtle performance as Samuel Francis of the Francis Tavern fame. In real life, uh, his nickname was Black Sam. There's been research into whether he was um, of mixed race. It seems to be established now that he was not, uh, but it's a great way of challenging the accepted history and showing how the colonies were more racially complex than they are usually depicted. And then finally, Ben Chaplin plays the British officer overseeing the uh, migration of freed Blacks to Loyalist Canada. And Alan Hocko plays Solomon Lindo, who is a indigo inspector who buys Aminata from the plantation where she had been uh, since she uh, was brought to America as a child. Aminata is taught to read and write, and she's eventually taken by Lindo to New York, where she escapes to the British lines as they take control of the city. Right. And the series doesn't spend a whole lot of time on the American Revolutionary War. And as it comes to an end and New York is preparing to change hands, Amanada is recruited by British naval officer Sir John Clarkson, that's Ben Chaplin, uh, to help register names of Black loyalists in the Book of Negroes. And Amanada encounters more hardship when she finally gets to Nova Scotia. The climate is harsh and tensions flare between the white and black communities over scarcity of work and resources that finally culminate in the, the Shelburne riots in 1784. Amanada successfully petitions British abolitionists who organize passage from Nova Scotia to the new colony of Freetown in Sierra Leone in 1792, a community that will be built up of, uh, of nearly 1,300 former enslaved people. With this voyage, Amanada returns to the continent of her homeland, but the community of Freetown is really just an oasis in a region still controlled by the global you know, Western slave trade. And so as we see here, and as you hear us describing, the show is really interested in looking at how these lives are only tangentially really impacted by the American Revolution. And the series ends with Amanada eventually uh, traveling to London in the early 1800s to work with abolitionists, including her old friend, uh, John Clarkson. And she writes a memoir and lobbies parliament and helps to enable the passing of the Abolition of the Slave Trade Act in, in 1807. But really what's powerful is sort of seeing how her life has meaning separate from what are these huge events that are of primary importance to all of the white people around her. Uh, the Book of Negroes does not have the production value of shows like Turn or John Adams, for example, but nor does it pretend to care about the American Revolution, other than as the backdrop for Amanada's Forrest Gump-esque expansive life story. 
but it is worth exploring precisely because it refuses to pay homage to the revolution and is concerned principally with the experiences of both the enslaved and free blacks. So what are the lies agreed upon we're looking at in this episode? And really, well, we want to pick up the ones we looked at in our first episode and examine how Turn and the Book of Negroes explores those three lies from new angles. Yeah, we, we discussed last time about how the founding fathers are always given central stage while the average person gets sidelined. And also how the revolution just keeps being represented and, and therefore is sort of wrongly understood today as having been this sort of quick and simple little conflict. And if you have these founding fathers who are treated like saints and you have this revolution that apparently you know was resolved in five minutes, then it's really easy to then also be thinking that there are just good guys on one side, bad guys on the other, Obviously, the good guys are going to win. But these shows, Turn and the Book of Negro, Book of Negroes, really challenge all of those assumptions. They do. And I think that's partly because of when they're made and where they come from. So as always, we'll provide some reminders of what was going on when the original books were written and by whom, and then when the TV shows were produced and by whom. Yes, Alexander Rose, the actually trained historian, we want to point out, wrote Turn in 2006 during the early years of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And we can imagine really easily that he, a trained historian, saw in the revolutionary era in general and in the Culper Ring story in particular a way to explore the complicated motivations of people who are caught up in extraordinary circumstances. And here we have Rose describing that himself. Washington had many, many sides, not all of which have been highlighted before. We've seen Washington the general, we've seen Washington the president, we've seen Washington the father of his country. But what we haven't seen is Washington the devious spymaster. The secret world is a phrase I use to describe uh, what, what's going on behind the scenes. Covert operations, raids, kidnappings, gun running, smuggling, uh, counterfeiting. There was a huge amount of stuff going on during the American Revolution that really hasn't been uh, treated before. The Copper Ring is a, is a disparate group of individuals, very ordinary men who lived in New York and Long Island and on Connecticut. And together they formed a, a network that was set up in about 1778 and operated until the end of the war. That These are ordinary men who performed extraordinary deeds. Yeah, so Rose, Rose would have been researching and writing his book at a moment in world history where complicated didn't do it justice in 2006. Exactly. And by the time the book was being adapted then into a TV series, six years into Obama's presidency in 2014, the potential viewing public, because of what they had been experiencing between 9-11 and 2014, they were by that point really more world-weary and cynical and maybe you could say realistic. I mean, pick your term. But in any event, a show that was about a protracted war with shifting loyalties 
and both honorable and monstrous people on both sides. Key to that also, even the best of whom find themselves doing things at the end of the war that they couldn't have imagined themselves doing when it started. Well, you know, that's something that the producers, the writers, the directors, and the network obviously thought in 2014, viewers were very much ready for. And and this is why Turn, far more than John Adams, is notable for its efforts to debunk lie number three, that somehow every patriot was noble and courageous and every Brit was evil and cowardly. In turn, you know, we, we see there's all sorts of unsavory types on, on all sides. The Book of Negroes uh, came to the screen one year after Turn's first season aired. The motivation of BET would certainly have been simply the centering of blacks in a story about early America, sort of like a certain project it's illegal to even teach in certain states today, 1619. Uh, but the CBC would have been motivated, at least in part, to create this production as an effort to lessen the whiteness of the traditional narrative about Canada's early formation. This is because 2017 was the 150th anniversary of Canada's Confederation. Yeah, it's really important to explain that, you know, because Canada is next to the United States and the story of race in America has very, very often been such a horrific one, that Canadians have traditionally been, quite frankly, very self-righteous and self-satisfied about racial issues. And of course, as we're recording this uh, with the revelations of graves uh, being found, unmarked graves on the sites of formal residential schools uh, where Indigenous people uh, were were taken away from their parents and were put into these uh, into these institutions with the intent of um, perpetrating basically cultural genocide to, to sort of make them no longer connected to their cultures and their identity. Uh, you know, we I'm we're talking about this in that in the moment where that is being revealed, and so therefore to kind of be telling our our listeners that that self righteousness and that self satisfaction that Canadians have have kind of been able to feel because of having the American narrative right next door really is, you know, quite false. And that was changing to some extent, even before these revelations, as various immigrant populations have begun demanding that white Canadians look more critically at their culture and their their history. And this moment of the 150th anniversary of Canada's Confederation, and then the years sort of leading up to that, which is when this show came out, there was this sense that there needed to be a, a reckoning about how whitewashed Canadian history had generally been. And I think that's why it's so interesting that the Book of Negroes is a joint production of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and BET. Uh, stateside, as we've spoken about before, events and circumstances in the mid-20-teens would have encouraged BET to sign on as co-producers for the Book of Negroes. We've noted before the Obama administration was both an era of great visibility and representation for Blacks, and also the start of the current cultural shift about violence against Blacks made possible by something as simple as cell phone video. Exactly. And this has also coincided with a new awareness of, you know, shock, the commercial box office potential of stories where black people are centered rather than peripheral. 
So everything from the Oprah, Tyler Perry, and to a lesser extent, Lee Daniels empires to grittier films by Black writers and directors like Fruitvale Station, Sorry to Bother You, Blind Spotting. In all of these cases, though, the key is these are productions that resist telling Black stories through a white gaze. Um, and just to mention the, the recent atrocious Green Book as a, a holdover example of, of that kind of filmmaking or storytelling. And when we use a term like the white gaze, it might be confusing to some of our listeners. And so here's a brief clip of Toni Morrison talking about her work and how the fact that she was always grounded in the Black experience and disregarded, to a large extent, the interactions of Blacks and whites in her storytelling, that that was seen somehow as lesser. Take a listen. I have had reviews in the past that have accused me of not writing about white people. I remember a review of Sula in which the reviewer said, one day she, meaning me, will have to face up to the real responsibilities and get mature and write about the real uh, confrontation for black people, which is white people, as though our lives have no meaning and no depth without the white gaze. And I've spent my entire writing life trying to make sure that the white gaze was not the dominant one in any of my books. Now we want to spend a few more moments breaking down how the Book of Negroes in particular treats the revolution, because it is unique to any of the productions we're talking about in these first three episodes because it reminds us of just how, for many people, the revolution doesn't matter uh, or, it's, or the consequences are entirely negative. Two of the six episodes occur during the revolution, however, and it is worth talking about how the series takes on America's cherished myths and icons about its own revolution. Yeah, in, in episode three, Amanada is in 1775 New York City, which we know from turn is a British stronghold, and next to Boston, it's the major flashpoint for revolutionary activity. So it's really interesting to see just how indifferent Amanada is to what she sees as sort of this empty rhetoric behind the menacing uh, white rebels. It's 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 almost disorienting to us as as viewers because we're so used to the revolution being this obviously central event to everybody that it touches. And we can attest to the fact that the reality that we understand as historians is that that's not the case. I mean, even when what we see with hindsight are the most momentous events that happen in a country, a whole hell of a lot of people are truly not caring. And so to see that play out here with what's being, what a white viewer is being forced to confront is how little the machinations of white people change the profoundly curtailed lives of black people. And here to just uh, illustrate this, here's a moment when Aminata has a run-in with a, a charged up rebel 
uh, when news of the battles of Lexington and Concord reach the city of New York. And by the way, we want to warn listeners that the N-word will be contained in the following clip. What do you mean? Rebels are the Tories of Massachusetts and Rebels won. Are you a Tory? What precisely is that? Better not be a Tory. War now. And we shall have freedom. Freedom of the slaves. You swore for niggers, I'm talking about us. Rebels. Patriots. We ain't never going to be slaves again. What is happening now? The revolution is here, I'm not. You want to escape? Now is as good a time as any. Yeah, it's it's ugly, uh, but that about sums it up. The point made about how Amanada is really just invisible in this revolution. She gets that sense too when the Declaration of Independence is being read in Samuel Francis's tavern. Amanada cynically responds, "You know what rights do they want that they don't already have?" Francis, you know, again played by Cuba Gooding Jr is an unapologetic supporter and admirer of George Washington. And he urges Amanada to get excited about you know, his impending victory. But she just rolls her eyes and states pretty simply, the same Washington who owns slaves? And I think that's funny because I know my, some of my more sensitive students will ask the same thing, you know. You know, the, the fortunes change for the colony slave population when the British governor of Virginia issues the Dunmore Proclamation in November of 1775, this is the proclamation that freed slaves, any slave who fled their masters to go and serve the crown. Now, did the British do this out of the goodness of their hearts? Of course not. It's that they wanted to undermine the ability of the colonists to to mount a fight, but it doesn't change the fact. And in fact, it's almost more important important to see it in that kind of cold, harsh reality, because it doesn't matter. For people like Aminata, they have no illusions about how white people think about them, but they are savvy and opportunistic in the, in the best sense of the word in wanting to take advantage of whatever it is that's going on that can possibly produce a better outcome for them. And here it becomes personal because uh, Hill, the author, makes it so that Shakura joins a Loyalist regiment because then by joining the Loyalist regiment, he will gain freedom. And Aminata is scared, but he correctly argues that if the rebels win, they could be slaves for another 50 years. Of course, we know that it's actually you know, more like 86 years. So when a big victory for the colonists, for the Americans happens, Yorktown, we actually get to experience that the way she is. So she's wandering through the celebratory streets of the city, but she's like a zombie because she realizes that her fate is even more fearsome than than ever as a result. Yeah, I think that really the point of this episode on the revolution is that it's a, it's a scary proposition proposition for the enslaved and free blacks alike. Uh, this is not to say British North America was you know much better for Amanada, but she could hardly re- embrace the rhetoric of freedom when it was so clear that for her things could only get worse. Uh, and so, in this sense, Amanada and the character Abigail, in turn, are similar. But at least turn implies, you know, one day this revolution will be for everyone. 
In the book of Negroes, once Amanada escapes New York, she never looks back. It's just another unpleasant chapter in an already harrowing life. Exactly. And and I think that's one of the reasons why the character is such a compelling literary heroine. As the actress Anjanu Ellis says in this roundtable about the series, you know, she's a, a modern woman uh, for this era. She's a revolutionary in far more kind of clear-eyed and self-purposeful ways. I, I had this conversation with um, a Swedish uh, journalist, and she said to me, she said, Amanata is very modern, isn't she? And I, I said, exactly, because I've been trying to, even now, you know, I've been trying to put my finger on what it is about Amanada that stood out to me. And, you know, I, I, I said, that is exactly what she is. She is a modern woman. And if you look at her character in terms of how she compares with other literary heroines of that time, say, for instance, Anna Karenina or Madame Bovary, what Amanata says she says to Shakura at some point in the series, she says, I married the man I loved. And when you think in terms of like what the kind of choices that women were allowed to have, no matter what their circumstances, whether they were, whether they were an enslaved person or not, they couldn't make those choices. This woman defined her own life, not her circumstances. She defined her own life. Yeah, I really love it when you know actresses are so informed about their characters and, and really feel them. And you get a sense of how that process works. And I feel bad, a little bad by calling this a uh, Forrest Gump-esque sort of plot, because it's really not. You know, Forrest Gump is someone who just, he, he observed things happening. They just all happened around him. Whereas Amanada is a character that makes things happen. And so that, you know, there's a big difference there. And I, and I think that that's also one of the things that is in some ways sort of almost disorienting about this series and why you can imagine that BT um, was eager to produce it. Here in this story, in these um, multiple episodes, oh my God, all of the enslaved people actually have fully developed personalities and stories. And of course, backstories in Guinea, where we see the complexities of, of the societies theirs that Europeans really only worked on the edges of. And, you know, in a, in a lot of the, you know, I don't know what to call it. I mean, the sort of uh, suffering porn that we get mm -hmm. um, in some cases that it, when we're looking at um, stories about enslaved people, they're so focused on making sure to emphasize the horror of slavery that they basically simply turn these people into black bodies to be the receivers of white agency, white evil agency, but they're still objects instead of being subjects. And, and so in this show, to see things like the ways that enslaved people manage to work the system, you know, eke out a bit of money and learn how to read and write and, you know, all sorts of things. Now, not without risk. It's not that at any point that you get a sense in this show that, that they're downplaying the danger and risk to body and mind of slavery, but 
still, it's another way that you can see that, hey, these people all managed to create a society for themselves that doesn't focus on white people and certainly not on politics and arguments between the Americans and the British. And we know all of our historian friends who who work on this time period and these topics will tell us that's exactly how it was, that, that of course, it's a far more uh, complicated and, and richer picture of life you know, for the enslaved. But when you're used to getting the typical representation of things like 12 Years a Slave, which is something we talked about in season one, we could admire the film on a number of levels. But it, it gets to that point you just noted that there's still just uh, abused black bodies at the center of the story. And so it's refreshing to have something like uh, the Book of Negroes, which I'm fairly certain you know, most American audiences didn't really pick up on. To have that as a counterpoint is is one of the reasons why we included it in the podcast. So what about turn? Let's turn our attention to turn. Last episode, we talked a bit about the sort of metaphor of filial piety and and how that plays out in John Adams and in Sons of Liberty. But really, turn is where this this narrative trick of using a personal relationship to to be a metaphor for for a larger issue. Uh, where we see this playing out over multiple uh, seasons. And we want to speak about that a bit again today, but what we're also wanting to get at is how that helps us to see, in turn, people's motivations and also their priorities and strategies and fears and prejudices shift over the years of the revolution. In other words, that it's not this simple event that happens quickly and where things are clear cut because through the relationship between these two men and others in the show, we see how within a single community, that community can be torn apart by different people siding with different factions and then how circumstances can shift those loyalties over the course of, uh, in this case, you know, more than four years of revolutionary activity. And I think a good example of, of what you just said there is that, you know, Abe Woodhull disappoints his father, the great judge Richard Woodhull, continuously, and even after he does the right thing by marrying his dead brother's fiance. And Abe's growing involvement in the revolution, his, his spying, uh, all this is a personal betrayal to Judge Woodhall. So if you look at the earlier part of the, the series, like the first season, you get a real sense of how Richard Woodhall is one of these loyalists who can't possibly imagine revolution. Why would he? Why would anyone who is born and raised in the, the British colonies think of themselves as anything other than a British citizen? And it, as we noted, it's only over time that he realizes the, the sense of oppression that his son and the uh, Culper ring is living and experiencing on a daily basis. So we have a, a clip that shows you just how there is this disconnect between father and son over the reality of living during this revolutionary era. And that's when Abe is himself 
in trouble. And uh, Father Woodhall, as always, is trying to smooth things out with the British. And so there's a dinner with Hewlett, Abe, and Father Woodhall, where they um, try to come to some agreement over how we can brush this under the rug, which is something that Father Woodhall is used to doing. Excellent, as always. Credit goes to Aberdeen. I merely raise the pork. She performs the alchemy. You've hardly touched yours. Hard to eat on a guilty stomach, I suppose. My apologies. Abraham, what I could not say earlier from my pulpit, as it were, is that I view your crime as a mere symptom of more serious disease is afflicting these colonies. Anarchy. You mean self-rule? I mean chaos. Masquerading as freedom. An excuse for criminal activity and every man for himself. Well said. If these upstarts were truly concerned with your liberty, they wouldn't encourage smuggling on the one hand and then roll you with the other. So, we all must pay a tax. The question is just who will collect. No man is above the law. That is what you told me. And I will gladly accept whatever punishment you deem fit for my forgetting it. Well, I doubt you can afford to pay the fine. pains me to recommend imprisonment, but we must have no favourites. Uh, there may be a temporary salve. His Majesty has decreed that any of his errant subjects may be forgiven their transgressions if they pledge an oath. An oath of loyalty, yes, yes. That is ideal. You know, we forget that for the people in the moment, the outcome is not known. And so we see a lot of representations of the revolution or of other events where there's kind of no suspense, there's this, well, they're going to win. And here, the complete inability to understand where the other is coming from is the result of being historical people in a historical moment. And that's your reality. It's not self-evident that the Americans are going to win. It's not self-evident that democracy is going to be the new form of government. What's self-evident is that you should have a monarch and you should have a hierarchy and you should have, you know, the great chain of being, that these are the ways things have been for hundreds of years and that they should continue to be this way. Yeah, Turn is the first, you know, series or book or anything that made me actually feel like, you know, the revolution was, would never happen and that... It looks and it seems impossible in the first couple seasons. Actually, you're it seems it is such a hopeless enterprise that I kind of felt for Judge Woodhall, like, well, you know, I'm I'm going to waste another son's life on this dumb thing, and uh, knowing that it will never go anywhere. And why wouldn't he think that? And that's what's great about the series showing the activity from below, you know, history from below. Uh, it's also hard to forget that this is a series about spying. You know, yes, it's a, the American Revolution is the backdrop, yes, exactly. but it's exciting and it's about espionage. And if you like those types of things, this is a great showcase of, of what early espionage was like. And what what is spying other than making the outcome less contingent? And, and so you get a sense of just how influential the Culper spy ring was in orchestrating events for the ungrateful George Washington sometimes. Um, so while everyone else is like shouting to Washington, you got to go to Yorktown, you know, you got to set up this this uh, trap for the British. He's still pining for New York because that's his 
ego speaking, but it's the culper spying that is um, they feed him the the information that makes something like Yorktown possible. And so that you know we can't. I don't want to overlook just how exciting and and really well done the espionage part of this series really is. And focusing on the revolution from below also allows this show to give us a clear sense of just how many other people were involved in making the key decisions that resulted in the American victory. And so here we have the various members of the Culper Ring and others trying to convince George Washington that he needs to stop fixating so much on New York City and instead think more strategically and broader about the ways that he can win the war, most notably in paying attention to intelligence that they've received and focusing on a place called Yorktown. Sir, I implore you to let me take men south. Cornwallis defeated Green at Guildford. Virginia is collapsing. The battle for New York is imminent. Green needs us now. This is foolish. Green can handle himself. Can you? Everyone disagrees. French, Governor Jefferson, even your own generals, they are all telling you the same thing. Sir, you must abandon this, this obsession with taking New York. The war can be won without it. How can I possibly win one without the other? If we strike in the South, then it proves to the British that we are everywhere and that we will never quit. And that New York is invulnerable after all this time. It, it will be an admission of defeat. Sir, we've suffered countless defeats and yet we are still here. We're still fighting and if victory can be gotten any other way, then we should go and get it. You're making this choice out of cowardice and fear. And you are making yours out of vanity. You will amend yourself. No, sir, I will not. You have been blinded by self-centered ambition. And it will be my men, no, my friends, who pay the price. Get out! He's kind of a mope. He's vain. <laughs> he, tra- he treats his underlings, both free and enslaved, uh, poorly. Yeah, this really does show the many times that Washington's ego gets in, in the way and where maybe we're not used to seeing him that way. It's all about New York, right? He needs to take New York, not only because of Benedict Arnold, but because of the, the prestige of it. And Talmadge reminds him that, look, you know, you're, you know, you lose all the time. You know, you're four and 11 in battles. You know, he doesn't say that, but that we know. And and that's because ultimately Washington did realize that it, it's about keeping the army alive. That's the revolution itself is staying alive. And yes, ultimately he saw that, but we really see just how he has to be pushed along by, as you say, people from below. And that's very, very accurate. And it's good that you talk about this revolution from below in the context of the spies, because that can allow us to kind of shift to talking about another group of people that doesn't sort of readily come to mind when you're thinking about uh, active participants in the revolution. And that, of course, is women. And Turn does a really good job of bringing women into the center of the frame and not just in the kind of traditional ways of being the sort of woman holding down the fort back home while the men are off doing the the work of the revolution, but rather 
turn shows the many ways that women actively participated that eventually have real ramifications or real real results in the military decisions. And turn does really show how effective women are as spies. And that's really partly because you don't expect them to be quite so active. That's, you know, the gender roles don't really suggest you should, but it's uh, on both sides, women were incredibly important to uh, the war effort. And I particularly like the latter part of the fourth season when we get into, you know, the end game of the war itself, what keeps a camp running at this stage in history are women, so-called camp followers, which is a really a derisive term, hides the fact that this is what we would call today in modern military language as logistics. They are responsible for really keeping the army running. And even though Anna Strong is this great character and she's frustrated with having to be essentially a camp follower, it, it is crucial to the war effort. And it's a great uh, couple of episodes where you see her and other women really keeping the effort going. Yeah. And in addition to that, it actually serves them as a great cover story for additional espionage. There's women on both sides who have uh, loyalties that have led them to become spies. And that takes us to Peggy Litton, who is the main female spy for the British. And in fact, if Wikipedia's uh, entry on her is to be believed, she was the highest paid spy on the British side of this conflict. And her plotline throughout the, the, the multiple seasons is a really great one, both at showing how people can still be loyal to the British, but also how flexible those lines are back and forth between the British and the, uh, the proto-Americans particularly in Philadelphia, where the city goes from one occupation to another occupation and people learn to give way with whatever the current winds are that are blowing through town. And that that's really another way that we see women uniquely situated to be able to uh, take advantage of those circumstances. Yes, and I think she may be more than anyone historically, brings Benedict Arnold around to treason. Not that it was a really happy marriage. Yes, if anything. Both truth or fiction. Yeah, and if anything, it really, uh, you know, when you read the, the biography, you can really see how savvy she was at positioning herself in a way that leaves her out of the fray of all of the, the potential blowback from being involved in the revolution. It's, it's a great character. So as we conclude, we usually offer our recommendations and it is clear by now, we liked both of these series a great deal. Uh, I did not expect to like the book of Negroes as much as I did. And actually after I watched it, I thought about it more and it stuck with me in a way that maybe uh, you know, something like John Adams and certainly Sons of Liberty did not. But uh, the one, the thing I, that's so impressive about the Book of Negroes is it is, first of all, unfamiliar for 
to me, and it was, and probably most Americans. I, I would like to read the book. I think the reading the book would help with uh, the series, and and I'm glad I watched it. But it, um, I think I would have really enjoyed having read the book first, since it did get such tremendous accolades. Uh, and turn is, as we noted, exciting, well written, and acted. And you actually care for these people because you have four seasons worth of episodes to care about them, including the British characters. And so I think that's really one of the strengths of the series is the balanced approach to the revolutionaries and those they're revolting against. Yes. And I think that just to bring it back around to to sort of remind our listeners that the reasons why we like them both, because I concur with everything that you're saying, is in part because they both do a very good job of refuting those lies agreed upon that have so often been attached to stories of the American Revolution. And so that idea that the founding fathers are the central characters the idea that uh, there's a sort of noble argument and only one side has it, and that therefore there's clear-cut good guys on one side and bad guys on the other. And then finally, that it's simple, that it's uncomplicated, that it's just, you know, that of course you just kind of snap your fingers and the revolution's over. Both of these shows really in different ways get at all of those lies um, uh, and that's quite, I think, satisfying to both of us. This episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim. It was also edited by Leah, and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson. Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lies Agreed Upon. That's at Lies underscore 